0: Hi, I'm Keegan, and this is a bunch of gamers. This is gonna be a episode of GM Talks. We have our Discord server; it's open. My co-host just got back from work, so he may or may not be joining us. It's pretty open field right now, but uh, the topic of the today was that I wanted to discuss some of the history stuff I'd been looking into regarding Vampire: The Dark Ages. I started a Dark Ages campaign just a few weeks ago. It was my first Dark Ages campaign ever, and I started with 20th anniversary edition, and so I wanted to see what the older editions offered and what I could steal from them, and what kind of thoughts about them I kind of wanted I had. <clears throat> so I started with Vampire the Dark Ages, which was the first edition of the game. it used the second edition rules. And it had a lot of the old pointless edginess of older editions of World of Darkness I found. Vampires were in charge of everything. The year was different, which is interesting because I started reading 20th anniversary edition since that was the edition I was going to run. But it started in the 12th century rather than the 13th century, which I thought was kind of interesting and a little clever on White Wolf and later Onyx Paths part, because as that timeline advanced through the editions, that required less retconning in a lot of ways, which is smart. The first edition was far more crossover friendly or attempted to be far more crossover friendly than I expected regarding an older Book. It had a whole appendix in the back regarding how to use werewolves, changelings, wraiths, mages, etc. And you actually see this happen again in Dark Ages Vampire, which I'll get to in a bit. Uh, some of my complaints regarding the first edition book actually was how certain things were handled. It was the 90s, so these things are to be expected, but Some of them really bothered me because they were contradictory in the same book. So the book goes out of its way to point out that vampires of the dark ages tend to lose their mortal racism and sexism because with the gift of the blood, essentially age and blood potency is all that matters. That's the only thing that a vampire needs to succeed in a kindred world, which is a good way of doing that. That way you can really include various kinds of people in those cities. But then in the same book, they talk about how the Azamites, or Banu Hakim, I guess, only selected for one particular geographic region and only for men. And that was a direct contradiction and it doesn't really make any sense. And it's also a little tone deaf that the one clan that is associated with people of color was the one that was also the one that decided to be sexist. And that just didn't sit well with me. Uh, things I did like, however, was playing up the, uh, the incognito in and some of the older sects as how vampires organize. We all know about the Camarilla and the Sabbat, but these other sects, which some of them still exist in modern vampire, were interesting because they were more more common in that world or they were dying out and that they tied the rise and fall of sects of vampires with the human world, which I thought was good. Hey, Brennan
1: hello hello
0: how are you i'm
1: good man how's you
0: good i'm just uh going through some of the history of uh, vampire of the dark ages all right yeah i just did the first edition and i was just mentioning how it was very crossover or att- it attempted to be crossover friendly which is a theme we see in these books actually and how it contradicted itself in certain areas And so it seemed kind of weird that the only clan that's associated with people of color, besides the followers of Set, of course, is the one that wants to be sexist. Kind of a tone-deaf moment, you know? Mm. But uh, I did like the idea and the concept that vampiric sets, or sects, I'm sorry, are tied to the cultures they grow up in. So they had all these old sects and talked about how, like the Incanu, was essentially a vampiric Roman republic that was the predominant power in the world a few centuries before, because of it tied itself so so much to Rome.
1: Uh, I'm uh, linking. I, I keep forgetting to link uh, the bunch of gamers page to some of my other D and D groups.
0: Ah, uh, okay
1: they were asking about it.
0: Got it. But, yeah, that was kind of my thought. And I I do like that. And I actually think that's what Vampire the Requiem did really well. Is that they had multiple sects that grew up and evolved throughout time. And that they were all competing now. Versus um, Masquerade, which just had the independence, the Camarilla, the Anarchs, and the Sabbat. And the Anarchs, at least... Until V5 were really just part of the Camarilla. Mm. Also, it's kind of interesting that Dark Ages had all the vampiric clans in it, which um, did not happen in 2nd edition, which is the generation that this came out of. You actually don't see every vampiric clan included in a vampire core book outside of Dark Ages until revised. Mm. But, uh... And then And so that kind of trudged along. It was kind of an interesting setting. It was a true dark ages setting in that vampire society was kind of reeling from the fall of Rome and things like that in the 12th century still. And that uh, vampires were trying to scramble to collect power. I think it, it, it was certainly in my opinion more directionless than its successor which was uh, Dark Ages Vampire, which came out with with, uh, Revised Edition. And that one was also very focused on crossovers because what you had is Dark Ages Vampire, which had all the core rules, and then you could actually buy Dark Ages Werewolf, which was the rule set we used for our first really big werewolf game for the the Ancestors part, when you were in the Dark Ages, getting beat up by a scrag. Mm. That so it once again designed itself around crossovers which is still very difficult in the older games but it was putting everything in one core rule book and you see that echoes of that show back up in the first printing or the first edition of the new world of darkness slash chronicles of darkness game which i thought was interesting but dark age is the vampire actually ups the timeline. So, I believe the first edition of Dark Ages takes place in 1149. And Dark Ages Vampire takes place in 1230. So, they advanced the timeline. Mm. And that was a way, I think, to make it so that they they could change the setting without having to do too much retconning. And... How that setting goes is basically a bunch of Methuselahs wake up and they just look over Europe and go, ours now. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so how they changed it a little bit is you actually had kind of miniature sects throughout Europe. There was no true Camarilla, Incarno, etc. What it was was like this L'Osombre Methuselah had all the princes within you know, the coasts of Greece Sicily, all the way up to Rome. the uh, um, uh, Corsica, you know, all that kind of stuff under his control. And so what it was is then you had a barren vampire, essentially, with multiple princes who were subservient to him, who had princes of smaller cities subservient to them. So it actually increased the feudalism of vampiric society that you would be used to in later editions of the game which i also thought was interesting Hmm. and then you had um the greater in control of like germany and chunks of france mithras in the united kingdom etc etc which i thought was a good choice actually i thought I thought adding these major players and talking about their fighting and actually intentionally putting in a lot of interesting conflicts to springboard off of made a better book. Mm. And I don't know how you feel about this, Brennan, but I had heard Matthew Dawkins in an interview that uh, he was in once that his goal as an RPG line developer is that, I think it was every paragraph should have a story seed that uh, a storyteller or a GM can latch onto and use in their game. And that's his uh, that's his metric of a good book, at least with the setting stuff. Uh, how do you feel about that?
1: Using uh, different storyline seeds?
0: Yeah, for per paragraph?
1: Well, I have no issue with it. Like, I mean, I, I think it's a good strategy. As far as that goes, like, if there's one thing, uh, somebody really likes about mm-hmm. the specific setting or the, like, a specific node in a timeline, mm-hmm. i um, we've run into that a little bit with Exalted. That's true. Um, like, where you want to start out is kind of interesting, like, that's, uh, something I would be most curious about with Vampire, uh, Dark Ages specifically, because I'll fucking eat medieval and renaissance stuff alive, Yeah, Just depending on whatever age.
0: Yeah, we're doing Florence because, like I said, the the second edition of Dark Ages, uh, Dark Ages Vampire, starts in 1230. And Mm -hmm. we're using the 20th anniversary edition, which starts in 1245. So it's the height of the Guelph and Ghibelline conflict in Tuscany. There's the crisis in Rome. I believe, actually, there's no uh, pope. At the start of the game, mm. uh, by that time time frame, uh, you have the crumbling of the Holy Roman Empire or the Holy Roman Empire trying to exude control over the Roman uh, church.
1: Yeah, it was uh, around. At, I'm not the best history person, but I think it's when Constantinople was trying to kind of retake Western Rome. East Rome was trying to...
0: I think, actually, Constantinople had already been sacked.
1: Had it? Yep.
0: It had been sacked, uh, because they weave that into the setting. Uh, There was no getting away from it in 20th Anniversary, especially, but uh, essentially there was a Toreador in Constantinople who went, I will make the perfect society where kindred and kind can live together in harmony. And then the Crusades, (laughs) like, the fuck you will. And they burned it to the ground.
1: This is So that's what happened to the... the, the was it the third or the fourth crusade? Yeah. They didn't yeah. get off track. They were there to stop a vampire.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: The, the Pope said no.
0: The Pope said no. <laughs> Why do you think the Pope died? The La Sombra. Clearly. Clearly. Uh, Clearly. So there's cool stuff like that, and I... I run into some pitfalls because i had to uh for our game basically go into google maps zoom in around florence click on all the little uh communities and check that those communities actually existed in the year that we're playing which is a level of you know meticulousness that most people don't expect from their gms but i expect it of myself
1: you're secretly teaching your players history
0: i mean I'm trying to secretly teach my werewolf players about colonialism, but that shit ain't taking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so is um is your Saturday game vampire then? Yes. Is it only vampire dark ages, or you're doing the same breakup with uh, uh, modern and then flashback? And no, back? no,
0: no. I that was too much. Um, and I, I wanted to just. Play Vampire, see where it goes. If it's a longer form game, so be it. If it's not, then we can jump into other games. We, we get to a satisfactory ending with the Vampire game, and we can either choose to pick it up later and advance the timeline, or pick another game. And that was my thought process behind it. Uh, Werewolf was just going to end up being a long game.
1: As it, as it goes.
0: As it goes, as it definitely goes. So... That's what we went with. Uh, I wouldn't mind trying Scion for a longer running game with the Saturday group.
1: Scion sounds like it's fun as hell. It's pretty um, fun.
0: It has its own issues. And I like I've mentioned them before that I'd house rule certain things here and there. But I'm sorry I cut you off.
1: Um, it just sounds like it's a fun thing. Yeah, it, um, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, Uh, How long has your vampire game gone for now? You started Um, a couple months ago?
0: Like, last month? uh, There's only two episodes out, I think. Yeah. Yeah, there's only two episodes out, so... One of the ones we had to cancel. um, Because I was gonna record a game, started the recording, and... just, like, stopped the game and went... I didn't have enough time. Life got in the way. Sorry, everyone. Can we just stop? And then we... When we went into a further Session Zero discussion because as it turned out, everyone had a lot more questions that weren't answered because I just kind of gave them free reign, which is kind of on me. But so they, they spent the time actually collaborating with their characters after that. And so there were some major rewrites to their characters on this, uh, I guess what you'd call second Session Zero. And that's how we came up with the characters that we have now. Hmm. And I think, th- and I think that worked out for the better uh, for multiple reasons. One is that the first episode's not sh- total shit, uh, <laughs> where I'm just like shooting from the hip.
1: Yeah, I feel like with um, this the style of game you run, it's a hell of a lot harder to shoot from the hip.
0: Uh, to, to a degree. It's it's much easier to shoot from the hip once I've done all the world building because what I like to do, especially for Vampire, is just create a decent cast of characters, give them motivations, and then go. And then have a really, um, a really loose first session, actually. My first session is usually my loosest, even though it's the one I plan the most for. It's the one that I'm willing to bend my plot. Or it's the one that I bend the plot for the most. Not willingly. I always willingly bend my plot. Is It's the one that I bend the plot for the most. And make the most amount of rewrites to. Because I wanted things to make sense in that game. Which might mean just overriding entire elements that I had kind of planned for that session. So that it would make sense in the session that they're in and that that session would be, more importantly, fun. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what happened there. I had a couple extra things in the first episode that I actually just completely dropped. Completely dropped or repurposed for later on. And I'm building some documents because... I have a bad habit of and this is uh this is kind of apparent in the werewolf game at this point is most of the npcs that they interact with who aren't just cackling evil people excuse me is uh are supernaturally based and i'd like to get more humans in there or ghouls even it's something I should want to do for where I always want to do for every werewolf game I run, but then all the werewolf NPCs end up being larger in life to the point where they distract from everything else. So there aren't a ton of reoccurring human and kinfolk NPCs. I think.
1: Hmm. I feel like I might have to be clever clever with how you handle it because in in my wide experience the players will abuse any humans they come across <laughs> uh, that's, that, that's I, i'm true. not as familiar with vampire i'm more talking about uh like oh no how do we solve this pro- problem giant werewolf claw
0: no um, I, that's not I, i'm not disagreeing with that but like what about a kinfolk who's on the wrong side of the issue but they care about um this is a dropped story seed from the werewolf game, and I don't think they're going to go back to it. So I am I have no problem revealing it because it was more closely tied to Lexi's story arc before she dropped from the game. And right. that was that there was actually going to be a kinfolk doctor working at that Magadon facility. And they were doing a lot of genetic research on people, and they started... Uh, pulling from communities that they expected to be werewolves to try and find the werewolf gene. But her goal was trying to cure diabetes. And her research was, in fact, getting closer to curing diabetes. But every step she took towards the diabetes cure was going to be a step closer to being able to basically genetically... Uh, track and catch werewolves especially before they changed as a a Pentex plot through Magadon to try and essentially suppress the first change in a whole generation of werewolves Mm. and she wouldn't understand why they'd think destroying her research was worth it given that they were so A. cocksure that the apocalypse was going to happen soon and Two, that they're willing to you know, make life significantly harder for people with diabetes, even though more people suffer from diabetes every year than anyone who changes into a werewolf.: Right. And that was kind of the idea of that one. I might play around with it later in a different uh, setting. It's just like how no one listens. No one in the game listens to this. So I, I have, I have genuinely thought about doing the, uh, the quote unquote, uh, Izuku Midoriya skin dancer. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking diabolical. <laughs> Grew up all his life thinking he could save and help Gaia, and then eventually he just starts culling what he believes is unworthy garu before he does the right and becomes a garu himself and becomes a damn good one but
1: i don't know if that's the Izuku midori that might be the uh um oh uh is it stain
0: yeah i guess yeah stain mixed with Izuku midoriya right
1: i want you to be the best garu you can you garu aren't worthy
0: or not even that, I was I was uh, raised believing that I could be a Garu warrior, a warrior for Gaia, and it didn't happen. Why are you more worthy of it than I am? Mm. And I think that would be a really interesting antagonist to play around with. Where they have this innate worm taint while they're trying to combat the worm, but... Banes are still attracted to them. Spirits refuse to teach them. And now they suffer even more rejection from the Umbral world than they did when they were human.
1: You could probably tie that a little bit of Broly into that, too, if you wanted.
0: You could, like, actually.
1: How, how, how strong would that Garu or that skin changer be if they had been accepted as a Garu? Or if they had mm-hmm. gone through the change and then gotten all the training?
0: Yeah. And I like that idea too. Um, I think I'd do that with the Samuel Haight character, because I always retcon him for my games anyway. I think he's kind of bullshit um, in the core line. Mm-hmm. I, because it was he was the original skin dancer. He discovered it. Basically, he went to there was a uh, Glasswalker Run Garu Insane Asylum, where the first change either permanently broke them or they saw too much shit the works
1: that would be an insane setting for a short game
0: yeah it was a it was a built-in adventure and basically he started murdering the patients and skinning them and then at the end he became the first skin dancer and started teaching the right to other kinfolk and then he found a a powerful methuselah vampire drank of its blood became basically ghouled And so he had access to vampiric disciplines. And then because he wasn't born a werewolf, he made himself one. They decided, fuck it. He also awakened as a mage. And then he got access to like mage abilities. Hmm. And he was supposed to be like the ultimate villain for, you know, every setting. And everyone got real tired of that shit real quick. (laughs) Which is why they kept him around for like, two and a half editions uh, and then he got killed and his soul got crafted into a soul steel ashtray why because they, they wanted to acknowledge that he was edgy had no points, so they decided to do it in the most comedic way possible and get him out of the setting because they realized he was a product of the dark ages of comic and like the cable effect where everyone mm-hmm. had to look like cable Yeah, but I run Samuel Haight most times as someone who wanted the power of the werewolves to help did help werewolves for a while as a kinfolk discovered this right was willing to do it but is also like a Hannibal Lecter style character he's fiercely intelligent and his goal was power and so because of all the the violence he saw, all the terrors he saw, and rather than the Garu condition of seeing all this terrible stuff as a call call of responsibility to hope for a better world and to fight for a better world, he saw it as a call of survival. And so, knowing that he was a human, it kind of Ate at him, and so he did everything he could to find that path to survival. And um, it is easy to discount people in both werewolf and vampire, but uh, remember that first uh, Pentex group you guys dealt with in the, the previous game? They, um, they, like, the first time we introduced Pentex, it was just silver bullets. <laughs> More than half health gone.
1: Uh, and... You mean the first team?
0: Yeah, the very first first team, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I don't mean the first team. I mean, uh, whenever we came across humans, it's it was just like, okay. Mm-hmm. Like, this is fine. The first team, we were like, something's wrong. They're winning.
0: <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> when that, uh, um, the guy me... was
1: standing in the uh, skyscraper across from us going,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. That's
1: like, um...
0: And I think part of that's true. I think part of that's on me for a DM because part of the delirium is, is if you're in a huge group of people like, you know, 10, 20, and they all start bum-rushing you out of a delirium-based fear, like, eventually you'll run out of actions. You'll run out of rage. Right? Mm-hmm. Um... And that's actually a big theme specifically in Vampire. And so introducing those kind of human NPCs I think adds something to that. Um, I've thought about doing this. I don't know how to go about doing it yet, which is why I haven't really said anything. But I've thought about trying to create some sort of random encounter table for a a lack of better words for Vampire where you have the them dominating someone to get what they want, even though the person is like greatly opposed and things like that. And if they continue to do that, you roll on this table to see if the, uh, the Inquisition for Dark Ages picks up that the rumors about how these people are acting strange and completely out of character every now and then, especially at night. And so that could draw in an Inquisition which means that your haven might be in danger during the day. Mm. And that could add a little extra spice. Since vampires, A, don't cause the delirium, but B, also they, they run out of blood points eventually, and there are way more people than there are vampires. There's way more people than there are werewolves too, but you know werewolves have a few extra advantages such as being able to soak anything but silver essentially which most people aren't carrying on their person at any given time that you turn into a Krinos.
1: right i think uh the, that's the balancing act uh on the grand scale it's um how how does the uh setting uh mitigate your actions or how does it treat your action actions mm-hmm. um and on a uh, single encounter level it's uh economy of action mm-hmm. i suppose um and you hear that a lot with fifth edition like
0: yeah the action uh, economy more,
1: yeah it, it, did, it didn't click in my mind until you mentioned like 20 people versus one garu
0: mm-hmm.
1: um it's uh resource economy for uh werewolf and vampire um Mm -hmm. and just encouraging that um like clever play from a vampire like working with people you don't always have to eat them Mm -hmm. or werewolves like some sometimes humans can get stuff done, or sometimes it's easier to go through it and not murder them yes exactly Um,
0: and encouraging that type of thing and for, the, for their credit, my players in the werewolf game, I think, do that. Uh, sometimes to their detriment. We've just ruined this young woman's like entire night. Why didn't you use any of your supernatural gifts to just make it easier on you and her? Well, Keegan, <laughs> because we didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is when they're trying to get Saoirse into a job interview. <laughs> and antics like they throw rocks through this poor girl's window like like they stand there menacingly and things like that they slash her tires and then and then Tyler walks up to her and she just breaks down crying and then Tyler's like I feel awful then I went why didn't you call a weaver spirit to just short out her phone so when the uber came it took her to the wrong location and he didn't have a good answer. But yeah, the whole thing with Dark Ages too is... They, they definitely play that up because this, the, the true full Inquisition is just a few... I think decades? Decades are a century off in the timeline. So the Inquisition is there as the vampires have been kind of like too out in the open in the setting and they get burned down, or a lot of them do. And the other Ooh. one is the uh, the original Anarch Revolt, which is what led to the formation of the Sabbat. And that comes, too. And so there's a great chance for a lot of apocalyptic upheaval without having to go to Gehenna, essentially in Dark Ages Vampire, which I am very thankful for, because, uh, you know me, I genuinely really, really enjoy the more... I really enjoy a grand, kind of explosive ending. Mm. And that's much harder to do uh, with Dark Ages, especially because, well, you know, that's, you know, a few centuries, right?
1: Sure. I, I'm not sure what you're getting at with that.
0: Oh, just uh, more of that. There's a semi apocalyptic endpoint in Dark Ages that. Um, plays to my style that I really appreciate.
1: That because it's not a true ending because we know that time continues afterwards.
0: Yeah, but it's it's a flashpoint, right? Right. Like I've done a post um, post great big of flashpoint ending in Exalted before. It was our first game, and that went okay. But it definitely felt like, you know, one of those anime seasons that came on after the grand finale and you're just like, All right, we're just gonna we're just gonna do some bleach. Got it.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> like it, it It was like the the first big werewolf campaign I played with campaign I played with you is mm-hmm. uh like if we had done any more after that, it would have definitely not felt right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um it's,
0: yeah. No, exactly. There, yeah. There was no good way. It's, but with the Exalted one, the difference was is that it wasn't really an apocalypse, right? It was just a good endpoint. Yeah. But and, it, it, but yeah.
1: Whether it's a good endpoint or it's one of those big fiery finishes and explosions, and then there's nothing left after.
0: Mm hmm. And there's yeah, there's definitely things after an exalted. I just think it was, I was so focused on that particular endpoint that I didn't really leave a lot of threads to continue. Mm-hmm. And I did better, I think, my next go around. That was the big big one where I basically let them tutorial on first age exalt. So they had like tons of powers just to play with, and they were so powerful that essentially almost nothing could hurt them and that one they got to the logical endpoint of the first game but because i had so many additional dangling story threads it felt like a season finale rather than a series finale i guess is the best way to describe that gotcha and I guess that's a question for you, since you run a lot of D and D. Do you think there's? Have you ever had that feeling where you got to an endpoint that really felt like? I guess, like I said, the be- closest analog being a season finale versus a series finale.
1: Oh, I I would love to get an ending at some point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, touched nerve. Um,
1: uh, I suppose my most uh, my. The closest, ex- my at least my most recent experience with that was, I was running a game, uh, for uh, one of my groups that uh, uh, it was just designed to be like a medium length. Like, we ended up doing fifteen sessions of uh, just total nonsense just to get them all like broken into D D because I think only two had played before. Okay, out of six or seven, um, and uh, we. Did a romp, did, like, hunt the goblins, kill a dragon, uh, get in a bar fight in a town, steal a skyship, all hit a bunch of notes. Um, they eventually got down in a storm, went through an Indiana Jones style dungeon, and uh, fought a lich. And, like, that was the big, like, that was the season finale with fighting the lich. And we closed that. Like, uh, I left a cliffhanger opening in case they wanted to continue
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but we closed that one out like they 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 finished that arc okay and uh then we started in another game uh and played a couple sessions of that and then they asked can we go back to that first one I was like, oh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> the one uh when we were talking about shooting from the hip i I, I have vague ideas about that game but for the most part I don't plan ahead because there's no way to contain where they're going.
0: <laughs> no, that's it, fair. That's there
1: there's um there it wasn't an alchemy jug, thankfully. It was just a jar of mayonnaise that I made one of the characters or one of the players pay twenty five gold pieces for. Um that started a comedy of errors. Uh, but there's like I can I can only guide this ship maybe half half a beat ahead of where the players are going.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, yeah. Though, I've done things, especially for the bigger games, I try and reserve uh, specific milestones. Like, the milestones are kind of in flux, but the major event happening, I have a kind of a firm idea in my mind's eye of what I'd like to happen, but the characters and maybe the events leading up to that flashpoint are in flux based on their actions um
1: kind of like in a choose your own adventure kind like,
0: of kind of not uh, quite though. more of your of a, i'm trying to find of a good example just in case they have they are going to listen but uh like the red star in werewolf that is a flash yeah. point in the game And how that comes about and where it happens and how they interact with it is in flux. But that sort of story seed flashpoint is always in my mind. Even with games that don't have necessarily those flashpoints and I have to make them up in my head. What I usually do is if I know it's gonna be a longer campaign, I have two, between two to five kind of milestone events in my head. Mm -hmm. And usually those events happen because the thing that causes the event is so far away from them that I'm like 80 to 90% sure they won't directly interact with it. And I let that go, and I let that essentially springboard them into the next uh, quote-unquote arc. And then I have an idea of how I want the final to go, and I let the... uh, I have a final idea or milestone and I let their choices really shape that around this kind of core thematic concept. The one that I really liked was the, uh, the one I did for Exalted that you weren't a part of, where I had the Infernal who tried to elevate himself to the level of Primordial to essentially destroy all exultions the the belief of no gods no masters taken to its logical endpoint because his daughter was the vessel of the infernal exultions and he knew that even if he killed her there'd be a new vessel and even if he redeemed all the infernals all the abyssals and removed the great curse of the solars that someone who will use the power but who is a monster will be able to use that power for the neg to the negative of the common people and he believed that a mortal dictator while an evil can be destroyed through mortal means versus a supernatural dictator can only be destroyed by the supernatural and so his goal was to destroy all things supernatural but that would mean the death of our protagonists and everyone they cared about, which is why they were opposed to him while not necessarily being unsympathetic to his cause. And so I always knew that he was going to be the hidden bad guy because he um, allied himself with them under the guise of being immortal and used an artifact to age up his face every time he saw them. He -hmm. reveals himself. That was the big kind of um, tone shift. From kind of wandering an empire building to an existential threat, the existential threat was growing. A second existential threat showed up, and they had to team up with him one last time, like friends. Uh, I watched a lot of show and a- anime when I watched when I made this story up, and uh, it fucking <laughs> shows. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so they do that. He gets away again. Uh, also, they're all out of essence anyway, so. They, they dealt with that. And then it's the final battle with him. And so what changed the battle and the kind of effects of the battle was their relationship with him, who they've defeated, what NPCs they've met along the way. And so a se- you know, before the session started is how I came up with like all the general directions. Um, if those characters didn't intervene with those other characters' arcs, this is how it's gonna end for those NPCs that they care about in the epilogue. And right. that was the idea. And so that's what I mean by letting the actions kind of dictate things. Cause I wasn't sure how they were going to fight uh, Thrax in the conclusion. I just knew they were going to fight him. And then I came up with the idea of him absorbing Lear, uh, him, the Scarlet Empress had come out during the time of this campaign. And so I stole ideas from that. Uh just some basic com- or, uh, concepts like the the primordial's actually ripping through the tapestry of existence and having that fight instead of an exalted versus demon army, it wa- it was exalted versus the primordial's, which was way more epic. <laughs> the the destruction of uh, Mount Meru and the NPC Dragonblood that they came to know and care about became the new Elemental Dragon of the Earth. And things like that became those focal points because those were the NPCs that I had to come up with. A lot of them in those sessions is just a, yep, this is uh, Gregory, the Earth General. (laughs) 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 And now he is... Gregory, the elemental dragon of Earth, <laughs> and so I think that's how I design endings. I don't know. You said you've never had a game end, but how how did, how have you ever planned from it for for endings? Since you clearly have thought about it,
1: um, have I thought about endings?
0: I don't know. Have you? I thought you have.
1: Oh shit. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> 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 oh, shit. Um,
0: it's all coming together now.
1: Maybe my games don't finish because I don't have a plan. <laughs> um, uh, no, I've, more often I like come up with a uh, a final hurdle or a final boss and uh, retcon it that way. Like, um... A lot of my games tend to be sandboxy, and it's just I'm just interested in where my players go and what they do.
0: Oh yeah, that
1: so uh, that might be part of the problem. No, that, I like, mean,
0: uh, even people who have sandboxy games, they they eventually do come up with kind of like a, a final scenario. And even my sandboxy games, I've like those final scenarios definitely come up. So I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I don't. Plan that far ahead. I don't think there is uh, my main my main setting that I have no games running in currently. Um, I have uh, a, a big uh, flashpoint event planned, mm-hmm. and uh, depending on what the players do, is how well set up they'll be for that. Okay. Um, but for the most part, that's um, it's uh, a big invasion that um, takes place and I, uh, kind of in that Mass Effect style, it's like you you have a an allotted amount of time and if the players don't have any like uh, fingers on the pulse of what's happening in other lands, they mm-hmm. won't know.
0: Okay. Um, um.
1: So they'll have either no awareness of it and it'll be a sudden and tremendous thing or they'll have an awareness of it and they'll be able to plan against it. Got but it. other than that, I have uh no clue how it'll play out.
0: Okay. And I mean that's that's fair and that's that's kind of how I like to do it. Like the uh, the Thrax antagonist, the only thing I knew at the start of our that game was mm-hmm. that I wanted the antagonist to be an inferno because they were new and they were interesting. That was the only reason that was uh I guess quote unquote a milestone. And that was that was the milestone. That was it. <laughs> um and then because Sean was co- co-storytelling co with me, we started bouncing ideas off of each other until we came up with this sort of tragic figure. And we came up with this tragic, we knew she was gonna be the main antagonist and we actually name dropped him uh, when they went to hell for the first time, Malfeast for the first time. And uh, they, they're like, oh yeah, these are probably Thrax's boys. And we were, he was actually, a significantly less uh, sympathetic villain um, in his conception. And so we name dropped him. And then, because this game was so goddamn long, he gets reintroduced to them a fucking year later. So they all forgot his name. No one took good enough notes to go, ah, that's a name.
1: <laughs> was this the guy who uh, turned out to be the, um, uh, was it, is not the mask of winters um
0: uh green sun king is what his title ended up being
1: gotcha and his mask like cracked away and yes that one. was him yeah that's the one
0: but um he got name dra- dropped like a year before as foreshadowing that he was going to be the main villain no one picked up on it we completely changed our plans for who he was So they're just like, who? And and then we start hinting that the Green Sun King will rise. And like, who's the Green Sun King? Could it be Thrax? Nah, I love Thrax. (laughs) He's such a good guy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then he went for the kill shot.
0: and, And we were like sweating bullets because Sean brought up like before they said that, that we name dropped him by name dropped him like months before because we we didn't expect to give him this much depth or do this mystery. And so we're just like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Be forgetful, be forgetful. Don't pay attention to my names. Just once in your life. And it worked out.
1: You see, if I was in that game...
0: I would have been ruined. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's... Uh, I had a uh, session when was it now? My, my whole timeline is all fucked. Um, but, but someone remembered, and I was like, yes! Um, but, yeah, I'm usually that guy.
0: No, I, I mean, usually that's a good skill. It's just not great when you're deciding to retcon your entire fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> so we were... We were trying to come up with ways to make sure that the mystery stayed a mystery, and luckily no one took anything in investigation. Or also the jig would have been up because exalted charms are fucking ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But that's what I mean by having an endpoint. Though is you you have a like the most broad idea of what the ending is going to be. Like for werewolf, it's the apocalypse. I'm actually still in pretty in flux about what kind of apocalypse scenario I want to uh, cap off the Werewolf Chronicle. Mm. I have some ideas. There's chances I'll reuse things from your guys' last game, because I really like that apocalypse scenario, and it's a bunch of new players, so they won't be doing the we have been here before. (laughs) But I've had other ideas, too. Other ideas, because I'm foreshadowing a lot of different things, too. The one thing I really like about the werewolf games that I've run is each one has explored a different aspect and a different play style with the game. Our very first game was basically wolf-shaped superheroes.
1: That was pretty awesome.
0: It was pretty fun. I uh, like not disagreeing. Then our second game was dive- a little more in depth about the uh, the tragic hero sort of thing and This one I think explores a bit more of the spiritual side and the moral complexity that the setting really brings. Mm. And each one provides different antagonists or new takes on the same antagonist. Like what we were just talking about with the skin dancers, because the skin dancers in your last game were pretty unsympathetic overall. Yeah, but this time I might make them very sympathetic.
1: I'm I'm curious to see how the group will react too. I mm-hmm. Think the players are different cut of cake.
0: Yeah, and that's if I introduce them. I'm still like lots of thing, things are still in flux for that game. Mm. Uh, same with the vampire one. There's a lot of I have I have an endpoint in mind, and you have to in this case because it's a mystery game. And if you have a mystery story without a set end point in mind, you're gonna have a frustrating mystery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: We've solved like thirty clues. What's going on?
0: <laughs> yeah. Why are these tr- clues contradictory? Fuck if I know.
1: Why it, was it, the it, polar bear it, on the island?
0: <laughs> Why?
1: Uh, I don't know. That's uh, that's just a, a jab at all the lost fans out there.
0: Oh. I was going to say, why is the polar bear on the island? Because I planned this last minute, okay?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I rolled on the random encounter chart, and there it was.
0: There it was. So it's part of the mystery now. I don't need a (laughs) reason. Mysterious, isn't it? (laughs) And I definitely feel that way. So most kind of games as my advice to anyone listening to this episode is don't try and overplan. make everything in flux that you can but if you're doing a mystery the final antagonist and all the clues have got to be set man like or at least pretty close to set like you can't deviate too much because if you are trying to change the clues and the conclusion because the players are getting there too quickly you are going to have a super unsatisfactory ending. It's going to be Game of Thrones all over again. Oh, I don't. It's true. It's true. I
1: know. No one should have to suffer that.
0: No, no, exactly. And so I'm trying to spare our ten listeners' feelings
1: <laughs>
0: of experiencing that by saying, "Plan a mystery." You don't have to have every single clue figured out, but you do need to have an ending, at least a conceptual ending, so that if new clues are found, you can add them in on the fly, that makes sense. Or know which of the clues you give them are red herrings, because those are also part of mysteries.
1: Need more mystery games in my life. Call of Cthulhu was very fun.
0: Yes, I, um, I think I'd like to run Call of Cthulhu again after the vampire one. I do have the uh, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, Masks of Narlathotep, and I also have the two Pulp Thulu adventures, uh, including the Two-Headed Serpent, which are both games or all of those are session settings I'd like to run in. I'm mm. particularly interested in Beyond the Mountains of Madness because I got a few sessions in with some friends before it kind of fell apart due to scheduling conflicts, as is wont to happen. Mm. But it Corona. was... Corona. Yeah, well, no, this was three years ago. You can't blame the Rona for it. Uh, but it's a very slow burn kind of setting. And I wanna, I'd want i want to reread it more and get the uh, the characters a little more... Concrete in my head, especially because we're recording now uh, when you're not recording it. It's not as big of a fucking deal uh, yeah But get those characters kind of Set in my mind based on the information they gave me to make it interesting To make it fun because it's got a very large cast of characters and several of them are very interesting uh, I know a lot of people didn't get into beyond the mountains of madness because it's such a slow burn But I actually picked up a physical copy for entirely too much money so that I can actually sit down and read it because reading a PDF from cover to cover hurts my eyes.
1: Uh, Agreed.
0: Uh, So, before we sign off, Brennan, are there any gaming moments you'd like to share with our audience?
1: Let's see. Uh, In keeping with the... uh fall of rome and the mystery aspect my i think single not single but uh my gaming moment with that um we were playing a bunch of centurions in the dark ages um i believe it was called cthulhu it it was it was um the train uh
0: horror on the orient express
1: that's the one and that was a Great time, and it, that was like right in there. It, like led to the mystery of the, uh, um the figurine,
0: the simulacrum.
1: Yeah, and just we knew it wasn't going to go well, but uh, just the way it was introduced and like everyone being kind of a specialist in their own right, but we're all like part of a unit, mm. and that was really neat just to jump in on we don't know these characters but here's what they do and like jump down and we actually did fairly well. Yeah. Like um just mucking our way through enemies and stuff and then in the the final part of that where it kind of fades to black I was like it really lent itself to the dread.
0: Yeah. Um I've thought about before with Cthulhu Invictus cause you you're the one who turned me on to the Britannia comics right? Yes. A Cthulhu Invictus game uh, loosely inspired by Britannia would be very fun.
1: Uh, Agreed. um, I'm reading some Eberron novels right now that are actually pretty close to the same line. Okay. Um, At least that's kind of how it feels. Uh, There's uh, an Inquisitor who has to go around kind of solving... Like, Inquisitor as in solves crimes. Okay. But it has to do with a blood cult and... It's within the structure of like powerful families. So it definitely has that ancient Rome feel.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, I I mean, you can also do that with Theros, I guess. Now I haven't looked too deeply into Theros, but I heard it's a very good book for 5e. I just, mm. with how wizards did a lot of tokenism hiring and then didn't let the people of color authors really create and just kind of had them there as kind of a f- splattering of diversity. For that and uh, Magic the Gathering, I just ha- I just haven't bought any official wizard books for a while. I just didn't feel like gotcha. it was right.
1: Gotcha. I, I was not aware of that.
0: Yeah, I uh, I can find the article if I can, and I, I'll link it in the description of this. Yeah. And I can uh, send it uh, to you.
1: Definitely. Definitely do. Um, I knew uh, a couple of my coworkers are very into Magic they're bringing up the um uh they're they're the only ones i get my magic news from and it's uh i guess five artists got fired and all their cards got banned because they turned out to be white supremacists um which you run into when uh you're gaming system is based off of certain colors and but that's a kind of a easy way to camouflage things.
0: Yeah, I mean that happened with Warhammer too, and I, I respect the hell out of Warhammer for just going, Oh, Nazis play our game, then fuck off Nazis. We don't want you. The unfortunate reality of the hobby is is that there are there is a substantial number of supremacists in war gaming and RPG gaming to where They are a big enough part of the market to where you might actually take a financial hit by telling them to fuck off. And so the gaming companies that dance around it, I take note of because they're clearly putting their profits ahead of any sort of uh, moral stance, which I'm not really okay with. Right. And it's getting better slowly but it's still not great and it's still important for people in the community especially those who have any sort of voice such as ourselves even if our platform's small to try and push those elements out because if you want people to come to your community and show that it's inclusive. You can't be inclusive to people to people who don't want to be in a nest of snakes that are looking to bite them. Yeah. So if you didn't yeah. know where we stood after, you know, twelve episodes of GM talks.
1: <laughs> Here here's your sign.
0: Here's your sign.
1: <laughs> um.
0: Get the fuck out. <laughs>
1: Let's see. Uh, apart from being totally clueless on the goings-on within uh, gaming companies, um, I've just been looking at... I've, I'm either eyeing World of Darkness Mortals or Call of Cthulhu just for a system change-up. Like,
0: I'd highly yeah. recommend Call of Cthulhu. Um, yeah. My other example to you, if you want to run a real, cause. Part of Call of Cthulhu that makes the horror horror is the fear of the unknown, right? And that's really hard to do with a system called Call of Cthulhu, right? Hmm. Have you ever? Well, heard depending. Well, of... oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, I'm I'm thinking of just hijacking the uh, the system and using well, it for my setting,
0: and that's fair. If you want to do that for a fantasy game, I'd recommend it's also D100. It's called Gloranthia, I think. It's also by Yeah, Gloranthia. Let me. Google it. I'm probably mispronouncing the shit out of it. So if anyone wants to correct me, Glorantha, right?
1: Uh, uh fantasy world created by Greg Stafford.
0: Yep, that's the one I'm thinking of. It's a Chaosium game. Oh. It's a D100 game, just like Call of Cthulhu. It has its own unique world. So it might be some that might be something that you're interested in. Hell yeah. But the other one I would have suggested is a uh, Delta Green where Delta Green is, like, it's it sets itself up like the X-Files, where you're, like, looking into the gray aliens and things like that, you know? Crop mm-hmm. circles, looking into the supernatural, werewolves, things like that. And then as you're doing it, surprise, it's the Cthulhu universe. <laughs> <laughs> and it uses the same D-100 system. So the player's guide... Is very good from my understanding of. I have the PDF because they they had it. They had a sale on it on DriveThru a while ago. But the player's book for the newest edition, from my understanding, doesn't actually contain any of the Cthulhu Mythos stuff. It's only the uh, the handlers, which is the GM's book, has any of that.
1: So it doesn't give anything away.
0: So it it should not give anything away, from my understanding. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm doing a quick cursory scroll. Oh well, the cover has a role-playing game of Lovecraftian horror and conspiracy. So I guess it was older editions that surprised you with it. <laughs> but it, all you have to do is hand out the uh, the players. Hand, you don't even have to hand out the players' handbook, right? You just gotta give them the basics and tell them how to make characters. I'm looking at the character sheet right now. Yeah, Mythos knowledge is not on the sheet, which mm. is nice. But yeah, that's the idea. It, it, I, I find it very, very cool, right? Like the, the concept of that sort of uh, monster monster game where you, you think you're doing one kind of horror and then it is the bait and switch, like Bloodborne.
1: Mm-hmm. Bloodborne turned out to be a Cthulhu, or...?
0: Yeah, it's, it starts off as a gothic horror game, and then as you progress and you gain insight, you start to see the Lovecraftian features until you notice that there's giant Cthulhu monsters that have been hanging on the buildings the entire time, and you just didn't have enough insight to notice them, which I think is super neat. hmm <laughs> And yeah, and then it just becomes a Lovecraftian game and you start fighting like old ones and things like that. And you learn about the old ones through snippets of lore after fighting uh, werewolves and vampires and ghosts. And then it turns out that there are Lovecraftian monsters as well. I think we will call it here. Thanks for jumping on, Brennan.
1: Yeah. It was fun. Agreed. Are there any gaming moments you want to talk about?
0: um recently hmm, I don't know I don't think so I think I've had all my big gaming moments I'm just planning I have to update some of my documents because as I'd mentioned I'm a meticulous world state uh, builder usually and so I have a huge sept document that has all the named NPCs of every single sept that they've had major interactions with right And I need to update the Sept of the Sacred Stone because there's a bunch of new characters there and a couple of characters are gone.
1: Bum, bum, bum.
0: Well, they've been gone. (laughs) Iron Howl has been a black spiral dancer and ripped apart by his pack since, like, episode six. So it's time to retire his name off the document and then just put a little deceased by his name so I can reuse the document later for future games. And very similar to the document uh, with your guys' game that I pulled the Scepter the Green from, Whole whole Cloth. And so, yeah, just if you're running a sandbox game, just keep keep notes of what the world state is, because they will bump into the world state, and things will happen. Anyway, I'm Keegan, and this is Brennan. This has been This has been GM Talks. Uh, We hope you all had a great time listening. We had a great time chatting. And until next time, we'll catch you in our next episode. Bye.
1: Bye.